following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. Message us at threestrands.church slash contact. All right, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along with us, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 today. All the verses will be up on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your own copy of God's Word, you can, Acts chapter 2. We're winding down a series. We're studying through really the first two chapters of Acts. How the church got started is really what's going on in those two chapters. Uh, but really, we're covering a 10-day period of time. Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. He spends 40 days walking around, talking with all of his followers about the kingdom of God, teaching them many things from the Old Testament, teaching them many things about what God's kingdom is like and would be like. And then he leaves them. He ascends back up into heaven. And when he leaves them, he says, I want you to go back into Jerusalem and wait. Just wait there until I send you the promised Holy Spirit. And for 10 days, they waited. He didn't say how long it was going to be, but for 10 days, they sat there kind of waiting. They didn't do a whole lot that's recorded for us. They did stay united in prayer. They did do that. And they did kind of get busy replacing Judas as an apostle. They kind of knew they needed somebody to take his place. And so we talked through that a couple weeks ago where they added Matthias as one of the apostles. And so now there's 12 apostles again. And then last week, we kind of hit the day of Pentecost, that celebration in, in, uh, in Israel. It still goes on today, the celebration of Pentecost. And that was the day that God delivered his promise to send the Holy Spirit um, to fill believers and to be with them and to empower them. And we looked at that last week. And so I want you to know it's encouraging to me to hear back from some of you. Uh, I heard some things this week like I'd never heard that taught before. I'd never understood what Pentecost was all about or the difference between um, religions out there and all that. So that's encouraging. I uh, can't remember what you told me now. Something about like, and I was like, oh, that, that struck me too. The thing, we were talking about the, um, do you remember what that was last week or something we, it was like new for me too. I can't remember what it was now. Oh yeah, yeah. Just thinking about like what it would have been like to have lived before that time um, to encounter God in a different way. Maybe to be on earth walking around when Jesus was here, walking around in the flesh or um, to experience like what it would have been like to be at the bottom of the mountain when Moses came down with the law from God or kind of what those different time periods would have felt like um, if we could have experienced them. But yeah, so a lot of good things, good feedback from you guys. Just like uh, I've been afraid. I didn't know if I had the Holy Spirit or not. Trying to learn um, how do you get the Holy Spirit and how do you get that power in your life. So encouraging for me to hear back from you guys. So thank you for that. Thank you for being good students of the word, looking at the text with me, taking notes, trying to learn um, God's message or God's truth for us. So thank you guys for digging into that. But let me just set the scene to kind of get you where we're at now, right? So the disciples, they obeyed God, they obeyed, obeyed Jesus's instructions. They went back to Jerusalem and they're kind of huddled up in this upper room. We know there's about 120 of them at this time, men and women, some apostles, some not apostles, you know, and they're huddled up there. They're praying. Um, they're busy like replacing Judas with Matthias. They're just waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then God unleashes the Holy Spirit on that house last week. And it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. And they see flames of fire kind of settle on all these believers. And it's so loud that it gets the attention of all the people close by. And so they all rush down, probably thousands. It would, it would be, you know, maybe similar to like, you know, if you were around a, a busy neighborhood or something and, and you heard like a loud boom, 
you might think like a bomb went off or something, you know, and you kind of rush out of your house to see what's going on or something. So that kind of effect, right? They hear this loud, mighty rushing windstorm and they don't know what it is coming from a house. And so they all kind of rush down to that house and uh, who knows how many, but it must have been a lot of people. And what you get from the text was that all of them were amazed and bewildered. And who wouldn't be, I guess, right? They were all amazed and bewildered at what they heard and what they were seeing. When they got there, what they discovered was all these believers who were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in their native languages. And they were kind of like perplexed or confused by that. It's like, I don't get it. Like, how do I hear these guys speaking in my own language? And they weren't just saying any old thing. It says in the text that they were speaking about the good deeds of God. That's kind of cool, right? So here are these guys speaking, and everybody from out of town comes down, and everybody that's there for the holiday um, rushes to that house, and they all hear the good things that God has done being spoken in their own language. And you get from the text, like, they're kind of all, like, amazed, bewildered, perplexed, right? And it's easy to look at that and think, like, man, if that happened today, If that happened right here, if there was a sound so loud coming from this room that everybody in McCreary County rushed out to see what was going on here. And when they got here, they saw flames of fire settle down on each one of our heads. And we all started talking about the good things of God. And it was all like different languages. And none of us even knew other languages. And they just heard that. Don't you think they'd all be perplexed, bewildered, and amazed too? So the same thing would happen today, right? If that same event happened, the same response would be had by all the people around us too. But it's easy to look at that and think like, if that happened, all those people would rush down to the park building right now and they'd all start following Jesus, right? But that isn't what happened in the text. In fact, you get the last verse we looked at last week where some of them say, these guys are just drunk. (laughs) They just wrote it off as like they're all drunks. And that's where we're going to pick the story up today because what happens next is Peter steps forward with courage and boldness and loud speaking and preaches the first ever church service sermon. We're going to preach the same sermon today. We're going to look at it in some detail and probably more detail than they would have had to look at it then because just to keep it real and keep it fair, the average Jew 2,000 years ago had way better knowledge of the Old Testament than the average American today. So there's a lot of things that Peter's going to say we'll probably have to dig into a little bit, and they would have probably been able to just take it for granted that everybody in the crowd understood those things. We can't really do that. But he's going to preach this sermon, and what's ironic is Peter has these instances in his life where he doubts the Lord or he lacks courage or or he um, um, denies even knowing who Jesus is because he's so afraid of people around him. Uh, kind of knowing the truth about him or, or, or persecuting him or putting him to death like they did Jesus. So he has these moments of kind of like lack of courage or, or fear or, or missteps or, or, or not kind of pressing into being a good wholehearted follower of Jesus, but not now and not ever again. You'll never find Peter in the rest of the Bible after the Holy Spirit shows up, invades his life, baptizes him, immerses him in his power and presence, you never again see Peter lacking courage. You never again see him afraid. All the way up to his death where he was crucified upside down. He was going to be crucified. He said, I'm not worthy to be put to death like my Lord was put to death. Will you crucify me upside down? 
And all the way up until his death, he had courage and boldness and confidence. And there's something about when the Holy Spirit invades your life, you don't care anymore what other people think. You just don't care. You, you, stop, you stop caring about how much money I've got and what my position is and, and, and when can I retire and, and I want my kids to win me this trophy and I want to achieve this goal. And you stop caring about all that stuff and you get laser focused on like, man, I got God inside of me. And all I really care about is making sure his message gets out. I want to go and make disciples in every nation, telling people everywhere about Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll know that he's with me always, even to the end of the age. And Peter kind of puts that courage on display in this sermon. And he's going to preach a sermon, really, by which all good, healthy, godly sermons are preached today. You'll see the elements in this sermon of what it takes to be a good preacher. And if these elements are missing from your sermon, it's not a good sermon. And I want you to know like some of these things we're gonna talk about today, I intentionally try my best to include these in everything I preach. I probably don't always get it. I probably don't always do a good job. I probably have taught you guys some things over the years that probably aren't even right. I try my hardest, but I'm not perfect, and I'm sure I've messed some of it up. But I'm looking for these same elements that Peter included in this sermon, it's worth noting that I flipped through the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, right? I flipped through the whole book of Acts this week and I found a no less than 18 examples of sermons being preached where we get some of the sermons spoken in the text. There's some sermons that are preached and we don't get any of the information. We're just told like, oh, Paul went to this place and preached for six months. Or, but we don't get anything what he said. But there's at least 18 instances in the 28 chapters of Acts where we're given some of the words that were actually preached. And over and over again, you get this exact same sermon preached. This is the sermon. And so whether you're talking about creation or the end times, whether you're talking about the Messiah coming or the Messiah's already come, whether you're talking about the law or you're talking about grace, you're getting the exact same elements because everything in Scripture points to the same stuff. God had a plan from the beginning. He's woven it all together for us to come and preach it, and that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to take a look at this sermon together. There's some elements in it I'll share with you. Here's something that kind of like stuck out to me as I was reading through it this week. There's three things, and you can kind of keep your eye on this as we read through the whole sermon, but there's three things that Peter keeps coming back to over and over again. Here they are. I'll give them to you. God's plans, God's plans, the Holy Spirit's power, and Jesus' actions. Now, I just want to throw this out to you. Anytime you're preaching a sermon, those are three great things to put in the sermon. God's plans, the Holy Spirit's power, and Jesus' actions. In fact, if you're leaving those things out, it might not be a good sermon. It might not even be a sermon. You might just be ranting about something, right? And so these are like three kind of critical elements. You can keep your eye out for them. Peter keeps repeating them over and over again in different ways, talking about God's plans, talking about the Holy Spirit's power, talking about Jesus's actions. This is what it takes to have a good sermon, a healthy sermon. Keep your eye out for those as we go through. And then I'm gonna give you my outline. This isn't in the Bible. This is just how I help myself remember the text, how Peter broke it out. I'm not gonna come back to this, so I'm just gonna give it to you all up front. Here's how I outlined the passage. We're gonna be in Acts chapter two, verses 14 to 41. In Acts chapter two, verses 14 to 21, he's explaining Pentecost. Now that was important because that was what was going on right in that moment. So these guys are all bewildered, all confused, all perplexed about what's going on. He's gonna explain to them what's going on. 
Then he's gonna present Jesus to them. Then he's gonna stress how urgent it is for them to take action or respond right away. And then he's gonna offer them some grace at the very end. Listen, that's a good sermon right there. You could just replace that word Pentecost with the problem if you want. Because sometimes the problem isn't Pentecost. Like Pentecost isn't happening every single church service or every single sermon or every single day. But every single sermon I preach, I want you to know I'm hunting for these four things in the text. What is the problem we need to communicate and explain to people? Because if there isn't a problem, if there isn't a reason to pay attention, they won't. And then are we presenting Jesus as the solution? Because he's the only real answer that works. He's not just a way or a truth or a life. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? And then are we stressing the urgency of making a decision or, 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 or taking action on the text? And then at the end, are we always offering people grace? Now, I've been in a lot of church services in my life. A lot, I've heard a lot of sermons, and I've heard a lot of um, teaching and preaching from people that's a combination of some of these things, or maybe it's half of these things, and once I, I get a lot, I've heard a lot of sermons where they're, they're eager to tell you what your problem is, but they don't offer a whole lot of grace. I've been in a lot of church services where like, they love on you and give you a lot of grace, but they're not willing to kind of call out any problems you might have in your life. I've been in a lot of church services that at the end, it sounds like self-help and they haven't really presented Jesus as the answer. They've presented like some, some practical steps you can take to better yourself or clear your mind or grow up in your own person and become a better you, but they haven't really presented Jesus as the answer. And I've been in a lot of church service, maybe I'm guilty of this too, of, of not doing a good enough job of stressing the urgency of taking action instantly, not delaying or not waiting, but we're going to look at all those together. So let me read through uh, this first part of the sermon with you, Acts chapter 2 verse 14, where he starts to explain what these people are seeing at Pentecost. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. Remember, some of them thought they were drunk. As some of you are assuming, nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. I know you're thinking, like, not for some people, but at that time, it would have been much too early to be drunk in the morning, the wine would not have fermented strong enough to probably get you drunk by 9 a.m. at that point. And so he's like, it's much too early in the morning for that. That seemed to be a good enough explanation. He says, no, verse 16, here's kind of where he gets to it, explaining Pentecost. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. So what we're about to read, now he's going to read you this prophecy from Joel. Joel chapter 2. Verse 28 to 32, I think it is. He's going to read you almost word for word Joel's prophecy from hundreds of years earlier, what it would be like at Pentecost, what it would be like when the Holy Spirit was unleashed um, on God's people. And so whatever he reads, whatever this prophecy is from Joel, you can be sure that's what was going on here at Pentecost, this holiday, this giving of the Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit. Let me read it to you. So he starts in verse... 17, in the last days, if you're an underliner, just underline that phrase, the last days. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Now he's gonna use that phrase again. I just wanna side note on this for a second. We've seen three different phrases in the first two chapters of Acts to all describe this one event of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling or, or, or filling or immersing all the believers, right? 
Jesus, when he's talking about it in Acts chapter 1 before he ascends, he says, go wait in Jerusalem, and in just a few days, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember that from chapter 1? Then last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit shows up in the house, and it sounds like a mighty rushing windstorm, and it looks like flames of fire settling on all the believers, and it says, all the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And now he quotes this passage from Joel to say, this is what's happening. What you're seeing happening here is what Joel predicted long ago. And Joel uses a different phrase. He doesn't say baptized with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, I will pour out my spirit on you. But you can be sure that all three of these are referencing this same event right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 that we call Pentecost today. The holiday the Jews celebrated where the Holy, we celebrate it now because the Holy Spirit came and baptized or indwelled, immersed believers and empowered them um, for the rest of their lives. So you get these three kind of uh, different ways of saying it, but let me like kind of keep reading through the rest of it. He's going to read the rest of this prophecy. And he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, what days? The last days, remember from verse 16. In those days, here's that phrase again, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. You're an underliner, underline that phrase, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Some versions may say the great and terrible day of the Lord. A lot of times in the Old Testament is how it's mentioned, but the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But then he ends it with verse 21. He says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. So Peter gives this explanation of what they're seeing. It's the beginning of and a partial fulfillment of what Joel predicted was going to happen. And he's saying, like, some of this stuff has happened, some of it's happening right now, and some of it will still continue to happen in the last days. Now, all the Jews that were there would have understood this prophecy. They would have known exactly what Peter meant by the last days and by the great and terrible or the great and glorious day of the Lord. We don't really talk about that much in our culture here as Americans, and so that can be something that's kind of hard to understand. So let's just work through that together uh, as a team studying God's word. We don't have time to look at all these passages together. Uh, I wish we did, but we, we could spend weeks on just this one sermon. We won't do that. But last days, let me just give it to you, kind of the way to understand it. The last days, the Jews would have understood that to men, the days when the Messiah shows up. When the Messiah shows up, the Savior, the one who's going to rescue and save us, that's the last days. Okay? So they would have looked at the last days as being like the, the beginning of messianic times, the beginning of the Messiah showing up on the scene. So for those days to take place, a Messiah must have come. Does that make sense? They would have thought that. Now in the rest of the sermon, Peter's going to lay out who that Messiah is for them. But it's just safe to say right now, they'd have been thinking in their heads like, the last days, these are the last days. And they would have heard Joel's prophecies and they would have thought, yeah, it, it is kind of looking like that. I hear this mighty windstorm. I see these flames of fire. I'm watching people speak in languages they don't, can't possibly know. And I'm hearing them talk about the good deeds of God all along the way. And it does sound like 
what Joel predicted. And Peter's like, yeah, be sure this is what you're seeing today. The beginning of these last days. Now what they didn't know, what we shared a few weeks back, was this whole idea of the church age. There's nothing mentioned in the Old Testament about the church age. And so they expected the Messiah to come and show up and deliver them and save them and set up a kingdom and overthrow Rome and be their king and rule and reign over them. They were like, oh, that's what's supposed to happen. But Jesus had this plan. We looked at that mystery last week and the week before, like the mystery of the church age, where he was going to send his Holy Spirit, fill up his believers, and commission them to go out and tell other people about him. And he's waiting patiently, not because he's slow or lazy, He's waiting patiently to come back because God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to have everlasting life. And so he's showing his great patience even with us when we reject him and we are sinful. Say, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. Come back to me. Follow me. Believe me. Receive my grace. The church age. It's a mystery. We looked at last week the text that said like, hey, even Jesus doesn't know how long it's going to last. Only the Father knows how long it's going to last. And when the time is right, he's going to send Jesus back. That could last a day, a thousand years, a million years. We don't know. We don't have to know. This is that age. Some people today will call that the age of grace or the church age like we mentioned earlier. And that's what's going on here. And these people don't know that piece of the puzzle. They just know if we're in the last days, then that must mean the Messiah has come or is here and the end is almost in sight. This is a problem. Doesn't look like a problem to us, but for them it looks like a problem because they're starting to think, you, you ever see like one of these videos or a, I don't know, maybe you've seen it in real life, somebody standing out in the street corner with a sign like kind of yelling like the end is near, you know, the end of the world is near kind of thing or something like that. Uh, you, don't, you don't see that a whole lot around here, but like in big cities or something, you see that sometimes. Yeah, Somebody standing on the street corner like screaming the end is near, the end is near. And, and so if you really believed the end was near, you'd be a little afraid. You'd be thinking like, have I got it all figured out? The end, what do you mean the end? I'm still, I still got a lot of life to live. Or, or what do you mean, if the end is here, they're thinking if the end is here, the Messiah must be here, right? And I don't even know who he is. So it's like, well, I've been looking for him. But like, so that, that would be like a problem for them. You get it? Different problems than we face right now. We have that problem today too. We just don't realize it. I think if you really stopped and thought about it for a second, you'd kind of have to be honest and say like the end could be like any second, couldn't it? So we still have that same problem. But this is a problem for them. And he says there's going to be signs. There's going to be wonders. Sure enough, Jesus did all kinds of signs and wonders. There's, there was no argument about that. Peter's going to even say that in the next paragraph. Like nobody disagrees with that. Everybody there would have. Jesus was like a celebrity all over Israel by the time he died. Everybody knew of his healing power. Everybody knew of his power over demons and his power to raise the dead and his power to heal the sick. And so he was like almost famous by the time he was put to death. And so sure enough, some of these have happened. I know you read through this prophecy from Joel and you're like, I don't remember that happening. Well, some of them haven't happened yet. It's okay. We're still in the last days. It's okay. Like, I don't remember the whole, you know, the clouds. Of, I don't remember a bunch of clouds of smoke or the moon turning blood red. Everybody's like, oh, the blood moon and all that. Like, that's not what he's talking about here. Just, it could be, but it's like, this isn't what he's talking about. He's talking right before the great and glorious day of the Lord. We're going to see all these signs. So some have happened. Some are happening. Some will still happen. 
But clearly these people were able to relate what he was reading and what Joel had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Clearly they were able to relate it to what they were seeing happen right there at Pentecost. Nobody seemed to disagree. It all made sense to them. And yet he doesn't leave them hopeless. He offers them hope and says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the age of grace. This is the church age. This is the good news that the end is coming. At some point, the great and glorious day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. What is that day in the Bible? Here I can kind of sum it up for you pretty easy. It's the day that the Messiah returns and wipes out all of his enemies. And it's bloody and ugly and not cute and not something you like to talk about in the kids' class at Sunday school. But it's coming. Where Jesus, the Messiah will show back up and he will right all the wrongs and he will wipe all of his enemies off the face of the planet. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. You can read about it in Jeremiah. You can read about it in Daniel. You can read about it in Revelation. He's referencing it here. You can obviously read about it in Joel. Here Peter's quoting it from Joel. But it's coming. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that all throughout this age, all throughout these last days, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. And you don't have to perform a ritual or be born to the right country. You don't have to come from the right family or be a man. It's for everybody. And it's available if you'll just call on the name of the Lord. This is bad news and good news and they're seeing it play out in front of their face. Oh, we're in the end times? The end is almost here? The Messiah has come? The great and terrible day of the Lord could be any moment? Tell us more. He's going to tell them more. Now he's going to present Jesus to him as the Messiah. Let me read it to you in verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene. I love it that he says Jesus the Nazarene and not Jesus from Galilee or Jesus the Son of God, or as Jesus often called himself, the Son of Man. He says Jesus the Nazarene. You know what's kind of cool about that? 50 days earlier, they had tacked a sign up above Jesus' head where he hung on the cross and bled out. It said, here's Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. It's almost like Peter's like reclaiming that mockery and be like, this Jesus, the Nazarene, the one that everybody agreed couldn't be the guy, the one that all of you rose up against and begged to have crucified, he's the one. God endorsed him publicly. How did God do that? By doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. As you well know, they all knew it. He did do a bunch of cool stuff, they're thinking. He did kind of do a bunch of things when he was here. But God knew what would happen, verse 23, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. He's recapping what happened, right? With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. That's not some hypothetical. That's not some group of people did it. That's not God just allowed it to happen. That's like pointing the finger at you. He's like, you guys killed him. God endorsed him, and you killed him. God knew it would happen. Verse 24, 
But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Now he's going to quote the Old Testament again in Psalms. He says, King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No, no wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave your my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Now listen, he's going to explain that passage, verse 29. Dear brothers, think about it for a second. Think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself when he when, for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. No, he was a prophet and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. Messiah is just code for Christ or the one who would save. Messiah, right? He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of him. Uh-oh, it's getting deep because he's like, you're in the last days because Messiah has come, the one who would save, the Christ. The end could be at any single moment, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Jesus, the one that was killed 50 days ago, he was the Messiah. God endorsed him as the Messiah. He proved it with miracles and signs and wonders that he did through him. And you guys killed him. But it was all part of God's plan. God knew it would happen. And God didn't leave him in the grave. God rose him back from the dead. Proving again, he is the one. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that would save us all. But remember, the end is almost here and you killed him. And when God sends Jesus back, what's he gonna do on that great and terrible day of the Lord? He's gonna wipe out his enemies. Now, who do you think is his enemies? Is it possible that murdering Jesus might make you his enemy? So were they scared? Who knows? The text doesn't say Peter just kept preaching. But think about his sermon for a second up to this point. It's Jesus-centered, isn't it? I don't know if you're like me, but like I've sat through some sermons that just aren't Jesus-centered. Jesus doesn't even hardly come up. It sounds like some good stuff. But if it isn't about Jesus, what's the point? It's Jesus-centered. Jesus is shown to be God in the flesh and the one and only way of salvation from the coming judgment. Look at some features from this sermon. He talks about Jesus' life, talks about Jesus' death, talks about Jesus' resurrection, talks about Jesus' ascension. He's going to do that in just a second. Talks over and over again about Jesus and all the things Jesus did. Doesn't act rattled by it. Says it was all part of God's plan presents Jesus as both the Lord and the Messiah. Lord being the one deserving of being followed and worshiped and obeyed. Messiah being the only one who could save and deliver and free us. You get it? And he's like, he's both of them. And I know some people that only want one or the other. Like they want Jesus to save them, but they don't want Jesus in their business. Right? And I know some people that are willing to do all the things that look like Jesus is saying to do these things, but they're still counting on themselves to be good enough to get to heaven. 
They don't need any help being saved, but they'll still do some of the things Jesus says. And Peter's presenting Jesus as both of these things. He is the Lord, the one to be obeyed and followed, but he is also the Messiah, the only one that can save you from the coming judgment in the great and glorious day of the Lord. And he presents them as both those things. And then he's going to stress the urgency to take action. Let me read it to you. It starts in verse 33. He's going to show him where Jesus is at right now. He says, Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit, here's this phrase again, to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear here, here today. He's bringing the whole sermon full circle. Just like I told you at the beginning, this is what's happening today. Jesus is in heaven beside God. And just like God promised, he's giving him the Holy Spirit to pour out on all of us. And that's what you're seeing here today. That's what you've witnessed. And then he quotes the Old Testament again. He says, for David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord. Who's my Lord? The Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies. A.K.A. wipe your enemies out. You got it? Till I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. And then he gets like right in their grill. Verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know, in case you missed it, when I said it the first time. That God, for certain, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. That's the sermon. It's all I got to offer every single Sunday. And if I offer you anything different, it's worthless. And you're like, uh oh, the Messiah's already gone? He's back in heaven? Then it really could happen at any second. And sure enough, today, it could happen at any single second. Jesus could return. And the great and the glorious day of the Lord could be just around the corner. And the real question is like, am I his enemy? Or am I not his enemy? Because I promise you, no matter how strong you are, no matter how much wealth you have, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how much your life is all together, you do not want to be God's enemy on the great and glorious day of the Lord. You say, you're trying to scare me into heaven? Absolutely not. I'm trying to teach you the truth. And the world's trying to pull the wool over your eyes and make you think you got all the time in the world. Death, that's something that comes to other people on the news. But at any second, a car accident here, a diagnosis there, one phone call could change it all. I'm trying to speak the truth, not scare you. Ironically, in this sermon, Peter packs it full of Old Testament verses. That's another good sign of a sermon. It's packed full of God's words, not the preacher's ideas. It's packed full of scripture. And they're sitting there probably thinking, how did we miss it? I wonder if their anxiety kept growing the longer Peter talked. I don't really know but he calls them murderers, enemies of God, and that they're in danger. Just put these three words on the screen because this is the whole sermon, really. Peter's saying, this Jesus who you crucified is Lord and Messiah. 
What he's saying to them is these three words are all connected. You tried to disconnect him by killing Jesus, but you need to know he is these other things. Oh no, what if he's right? What if we were wrong? At this point, if I were Peter, I'd start bashing them over the head verbally. I'd start letting them know how they deserve to go to hell and they're no good, dirty, rotten scoundrels. Peter doesn't do that. If I were these people in the crowd, I might start to think like, I gotta make up for this. I gotta start doing something to fix this. I, I, maybe I did make a mistake. I, maybe I need to study the Bible more. Maybe I need to start going to temple, getting myself right with the Lord. None of that comes up. Let me read you what happens. Their response to it, what Peter tells them. Verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? I just want you to know that's the response I'm looking from for you every single Sunday. That we would open up God's word, we'd read it together, we'd talk about it a little bit, and that all of us would be like, oh no, in light of what God says, what should I do? What should I change? Peter doesn't say hardly any of the things I would have said if I was in my own spirit there. Here's what he says, verse 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Peace one. Keep that in your head for a second. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, peace too. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What gift of the Holy Spirit? The exact same gift you just watched us all get. Not a different Holy Spirit. He offers them grace. They actually don't have to do anything. Just repent, which repent just means change your mind about. Change your mind about all your sins and turn to God instead. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not like all oh, that water will save you. No, what he's saying is baptism at that time was a symbol, at that time was a symbol that you were following somebody new. So they would take on a new mentor, a new rabbi, and they'd get baptized in that person's name and follow him. He's like, no, get baptized in the name of Jesus. Declare to the rest of the world you've surrendered all your life to Jesus. You'll do whatever he says from now on. This is the two elements of becoming a Christian. The two sides of one coin that you would look at God and say, look how sinful I am, God, save me. And you would look at Jesus and say, look how magnificent you are, I will follow you. And so I need to be saved and I will also surrender everything I am in the same moment. And if I do that, I don't have to pay penance. I don't owe the Lord any retribution. He's not looking to take revenge on me. He's not giving me a bunch of chores I got to do to earn my way back into his good graces. He's just saying, if you do that, I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit, you mean the one that's going to invade my life and immerse me, pour into me, fill me, baptize me, fill me with power, seal me to the day of redemption, convict me of my sin, show me how to live, teach me the truth, remind me that I'm loved and chosen? Yes. That spirit, the same one all the apostles got, the same one the 120 believers got, the exact same Holy Spirit. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to crawl to me on your knees asking me what you can do to make up for all the sins you've committed. You just have to ask me to save you and surrender your life to my son and I will give you the spirit. 
Verse 39, he says, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. There's some discrepancy what people think that means there about those far away. Some people think it means to all the Gentiles. Some people just think it means the people living really far away. I don't know, but either way, I'm one of them. Because I'm a Gentile and I live really far away from Israel. And so I know this applies to me and you. This promise is for us. Verse 40, Peter said, Peter continued preaching for a long time. I won't do that today, but he did. Strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. And those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. They didn't have to sit through a membership class. They didn't have to learn all the ins and outs of the Bible. They didn't have to spend some time sitting on the shelf thinking about how sinful they've been. They just cried out and said, save me. I'll do whatever you say. Baptize me. And they were added to the church. 3,000 of them. Must have been a lot of people there for 3,000 of them of them to respond to it in faith. This is the gospel message. It is the only message. It is the entire Bible in a nutshell. And whether you're looking at the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Jonah or Noah in the Old Testament, whether you're reading about Moses getting the law from God or Jesus coming to earth in the flesh to be our Lord and Savior, whether you're reading about how time is going to play out at the end or you're reading about all the letters to all the churches in the New Testament, this is the story This is the Bible. This is the only message from God. It all points to this. And if it doesn't, it's not real preaching. It's not a real sermon. And I thought about this this week. I thought, this isn't just grace being offered. This is the greatest grace. Like, could there be a greater grace than for God to be like, you, you were screaming in that crowd for them to kill my son. And then, and then you, I saw you walking out to the cross with him, cheering him on, egging on the crowd to beat him more. You, I see you standing there listening like you're all holy and godly. And I remember just 50 days ago, you were driving nails into my son's hands. Could there be a greater grace than somebody to execute your child? And then you just say, you don't owe me anything. Just trust me. Just ask me to save you, and I will. Just call out to me. This is the age of grace, the age of the church. It's unique. It's beautiful. Can't even fathom what it would be like to be one of these guys walking around just so terrified all the time. What if I touch the Ark of the Covenant? God might strike me dead. Yeah, God looks at us today, and he's like, no, you Gentiles, I'm, I'm sending my spirit to you too. He's going to immerse you. He's going to bring you comfort and power. It's going to be beautiful. And you're not going to owe me anything for it. Jesus is going to have paid the whole price for it. This is the main tool that God used to build his church. It's why we preach a sermon just about every single time we meet. And because singing and worship is nice, we need prayer time, we need food. God knows we need food. But we need to hear the gospel over and over again. We need to get it to the people who have never heard it. We need to go and make disciples in every nation. And and in case you're in the dark right now, I want to let you into the light. The sermon isn't always preached by the pastor. 
Sometimes the sermon is preached up here in the front, and sometimes it's preached at the back of the room in a conversation. Sometimes it's preached from a stage, and sometimes it's preached across a restaurant table. Sometimes it's preached by a pastor, and sometimes it's preached by a friend or a family member. The job of preaching, the job of presenting the gospel, isn't the job of the pastor. It's the job of the Christian. It's the only job. All the other jobs are like so insignificant compared to that job. This is the message that there's a real problem out there. We're screwed up. Judgment's coming. But Jesus paid the price. And all we have to do is call out to him for salvation. Surrender our lives to him. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't know, this is all kind of like foreign to me. I don't even know if I have the Holy Spirit. I don't even really know what that means. I, I was here last week and this week. I still don't know what that means. I've never cried out to Jesus to save me. I can look at my life and tell I'm not surrendered to him and what he says to do. Then today is the day. I urge you with a sense of urgency to not wait till tomorrow because tomorrow we might not be here. You see, he's saying Jesus is coming back today. I'm not saying that. He could. But nobody knows when he's coming. Only God knows. But he could come back tomorrow. But even if he doesn't, I could go to him tomorrow. I could be done tomorrow. And there's nobody in the room that can stand in front of the Lord now and say, like, but I didn't know, Lord. We know. We're messed up. Jesus paid the price. All it takes is for me to call out to him to save me and surrender my life to him. And the Holy Spirit comes and invades my life. And I get the exact same power, exact same security, exact same comfort that all the apostles got. That's the gospel. So today, maybe you're the person here and you're thinking, I don't do a good job of preaching sermons in my life. I mean, I see a lot of people. They sit in class with me or I work with them every day but I don't talk about this stuff every day. Maybe this is the day where you need to be like, God, I've, I've screwed up. I, I haven't taken this seriously enough. I haven't lived with urgency. I've lived as like, we've got forever to figure this out. And literally people are dying every day. And I don't wanna live that way anymore. Maybe you're the person here and you think like, I don't even have the Lord in my life. This is all new to me. Today can be the day. Just cry out to him and ask him to save you. When I say cry out, I don't mean you have to cry. It doesn't have to have tears with it. Just get real is what I mean. Get real with the Lord. Recognize he's the only one that can save you and ask him to save you. Recognize he's the only one of surrender and surrender your life to him. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit just like me, just like these guys. No different. The age of grace. This is the church. I hope you'll come back next week. I want you to see what these 3,000 people did after they got the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We try our hardest to follow their example. I hope you'll come back and hear all about it next week. If you need Jesus in your life, if you need him to save you and you need to surrender to him, this is your moment to do it. We're gonna sing a song in just a minute. I'm gonna pray over you before we do that. Just pray for courage. And you don't have to walk down the aisle or even talk to me. It doesn't even matter. I definitely don't want you hugging me because it's my birthday. Not a hugger. <laughs> but this can be your moment, your day of salvation. Just talk to God on your own. Nothing fancy. He's not even impressed if it is fancy. 
He just wants the real you. Will you surrender your life to him? We ask him to save you. Will you stand with me? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you keep using broken people like us to carry your message around the planet. This is everything, Jesus. All the other stuff is just icing. This is the only cake. All the buildings and the illustrations and the sound equipment and the church events and the dinners, all of it, God. It's just all icing. But this is the cake that we need you. We need you to save us and we need you to lead us. Would you give courage to the people in our room right now? Don't expect 3,000 people to believe on you today, Jesus, because there aren't that many here. But God, whoever is here that doesn't believe in you, that doesn't believe in you like your word describes it, would you give them the courage right now to just call out to you in their own heart and say, save me. To just cry out to you in their own heart and say, I'll surrender everything I am to you. To experience what it's like to be invaded and overcome by your spirit. Would you give them that courage, God? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.